This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Morning, everybody. It's going to be 72 out there today. Somebody let the weatherman know it was Easter. That's awesome. I'm so glad that you have chosen to be here. If you're watching online, I'm so glad that you've chosen to be part of our larger audience. We have wonderful things to process today. For those of you who are brand new to New Life, my name is Ron. I'm the lead pastor of our church. I'm going to be teaching us for the next 25 to 30 minutes. 35, if I get really long-winded, you could pray about that if you want to. Um, We have some amazing things to learn today. And I want us to not have this experience and miss the learning. So I hope you came prepared to connect with God, even if you're brand new. And maybe you took a step in the door like a friend of mine did recently, and she did not know I was watching her from a distance. She put her foot in the door and looked up and went, well, didn't fall down. And then she came on in. So even if you're one of those, it's okay. It's okay. This is a great place to be. I'd like to start out by leading us in a prayer. So if you would join me. God, we're here today to celebrate the day that changed eternity. The day that literally changed our lives. The day that turned darkness into light. And we're so excited about that. But Lord, even in the midst of that celebration, we're reminded of two groups of people. And they're just two among a a whole myriad of groups who struggle. But there are two groups that you often address, widows and orphans. And both of them are represented right here today. And for those people, life is not easy and maybe hasn't been easy for a long time. And they face challenges that many of us are just not aware of. And so this morning, we lift up every widow, not just in our audience, but we lift up the widows in our community and the widows in our world as they try to find a way to make it without their spouse as they try to find a way to walk through this life and not feel lonely and not feel alone and not feel vulnerable. And God, we pray for the orphans who start this life at such a deficit. We pray for the kids who are in foster families. We pray for those foster families. It's our prayer, God, that every person who walks the face of planet Earth would somehow be a member of somebody's family. That no one would have to walk through this life alone. God, we partner with another church in town this week. We're praying for St. John's Anglican Church and 
David and Betty Miller and uh, our brothers and sisters who are meeting just down McDowell from us. We pray that this would be a powerful Easter for them. We're so grateful that they that David stands virtually every Sunday in front of the people of St. John's and continues to declare the good news of Jesus. And we pray that you would bless that church as you are blessing us. And God, one more thing we pray for the pastor search that our church is in right now. And it's an exciting time, and we know we're about ready to take a huge step in that process even this week. So would you guide our pastor search team and our stewards team as we meet together? Um, Most of all, we pray that you would preside over that meeting, and not just the meeting, but over that entire process. This morning, would you enable us to use our imaginations to maybe step back in time to the day that Jesus stepped out of the grave and into the open and made good on his promise? And would you do a work in our lives as we learn? And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in a teaching series called, it may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. And the interesting thing about that title is no one but Jesus knew what that meant. And yet he lived his life and particularly the last few days of his life, he lived with the assurance that even on Friday, as dark as it was, and if you weren't able to be here last week, I want to encourage you to go home, pull up our website, and take a look at the teaching from last week, because we took a a wonderful look at what Jesus did in the darkest hours of his life that empowered him to, to live Friday in the hope of Sunday. And we actually, it was a little bit like a drink out of a fire hose because we looked at 10 things that Jesus did in that last day of his life that actually empowered him through the darkness. So if you're in a dark time, that, that would be a great teaching for you. If you're going through a really tough time, we're going to talk about that quite a bit today. But today, we're actually going to take another step. Last week was dealing with the darkness. Today, we're going to talk about finding light after darkness. I have a number of grandchildren who are in track. Actually, three of them have been in track, I believe, for the last seven years. And they come to me all excited, Poppy, I PR'd today. Hmm. Did that hurt? (laughs) What's PR'd? I know what PO'd means. That's probably not good. I know what PR is. That's promotion, but I'm pretty sure that's not what you did. PR, Poppy, it's a personal record. I set my own personal record. And it's such a big deal. And every time 
that they step into the starting blocks or whatever it is that they're going to do. The goal isn't necessarily to beat everybody else. The goal is to set a personal record because that means you're improving. Well, this morning, I want to talk about a different kind of PR. It's so, so important. I want to talk about the personal resurrections that Jesus enables us to have. If you're in the middle of darkness, did you know that Jesus has a personal resurrection waiting for you? And when you step into that personal resurrection, you will step out of the darkness and into the light. You will be finding the light after darkness. So that's what we're going to dig into. Now, in order to understand how all this works, we have to understand some things about Jesus. And the more that we have studied the life of Jesus, the more we have come to understand that there were three core values that Jesus held for every person he ever interacted with. And they are really significant. And because they were so significant in the life of Jesus, these three core values have become the heartbeat of our church. And they are the core values that we hold in our heart every time we interact with anyone. And the first core value is this. Everybody's loved. No qualifications needed. No caveats. No exceptions. Nothing you need to do in order to earn the love of Jesus or the love of this church. If you're a person, he doesn't care what you've done. We don't care what you've done. We don't care how dark and ugly and deep your, your life might be. For that matter, we don't care how rich or successful you are either. When you walk into this church building and when you interact with the people of this church, the ground is all level. Nobody has a head start. Nobody starts in the hole. We all start from this wonderful place that if you are a human being, you have been created in the image of the all-powerful God. You have been created to be his child. And that means you are worthy of his love and ours too. Somehow, everybody who came into the presence of Jesus sensed that and knew that. It's why they all felt safe in his presence. It's why they flocked to him by the thousands. The second core value that Jesus had was this understanding that nobody's perfect, that this is a broken world, and we are all born into a broken world, and we're all born with our share of brokenness. And you know what? Before I was born, God did not consult me and say, Ron, 
what brokenness would you like to choose? I didn't get to choose it. I was born into a broken world. And there's always been some form of brokenness in my life. But that's true of all of us. And Jesus knew that. And he knew that no one was perfect. But here's the cool thing. He was okay with that. He didn't look at people in judgment about that brokenness. He didn't say, well, your brokenness is worse than his. Nor did he say, well, thank God your brokenness is not as bad as hers or theirs. There was this understanding that we share a common humanity, and it includes brokenness. It's why in the church we treasure the concept of grace because grace is what broken people give broken people so they can walk through this life together. Got it? And if you extract grace out of that, it gets really ugly. But then there was this third core value that Jesus always had, and that is anything's possible. When you put God in the equation, anything is possible. You say, but, but pastor, you don't know how dark my life is. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done to my marriage or my marriages. You don't know what I've done to my kids. You don't know what I've said to my kids. You don't know what I've done at work. I've blown up my job. You don't know what kind of addiction grips me and holds me in bondage. You don't know the trials that have come against me. And the beautiful thing is, no matter what you can name, it's not bigger than God. And with God, anything is possible. And we have a strong belief in that in this church. That's not cliche. That's not a pat answer. If you were to dig into the lives of those of us who have been in this church for a while, you would find all sorts of personal resurrections where we were in darkness that was bigger and deeper than we were. And Jesus reached down and lifted us out of that darkness and did something in our lives we could never do. So we're going to learn three wonderful concepts out of the resurrection of Jesus this morning. So to begin, I want to go back and just read the story. So take a look at the, at the screens. Very early on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, Salome, and several other women took the spices they had purchased and prepared and went to the tomb where Jesus was laid so they could anoint his body. Now, for those of you who like to pull up the Bible on your phone and you're wondering, what version am I reading from? Okay, if you look at the bottom of the screen, 
I have integrated the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? Because they each give different details. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are fuller documentaries of Jesus' life that are contained in the Bible, okay? So I kind of put them all together, all right? Moving on. On the way, they were asking each other, oh, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? So Jesus was buried in a cave that was carved out of solid rock, and they covered the entrance to it with a giant stone that was rolled in front of the entrance. And on the way there, they're thinking, oh, how are we going to get in there? All right. But as they arrived, they looked and saw the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. So they went in. Props to those women. Would you walk into a grave? Maybe not. They went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. But they did find something else. Take a look. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes as white as snow. Would that get your attention? That would get my attention anytime, but if I'm in a tomb, <laughs> that's really going to get my attention. And the women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground, and the men asked a very logical question. I love this question. Look at it. Why are you looking among the dead for someone who's alive? That's kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah. If you're looking for me today, please stay out of the cemeteries. I'm hoping to be alive. I don't think you'll find me there. Right? Goes on to say, he isn't here. He has risen from the dead. But they weren't done talking. Take a look at how they finished this off. Remember what he told you back in Galilee. Now this is, Galilee's in the north of the nation of Israel, and Judea is in the south. Jesus died and was buried in the south. But he said, remember back when you were up north? He said to you he was going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. He would be crucified, but that he would rise again on the third day. Now, Jesus had said that to his followers countless times. But have you ever had anybody say something to you and just went right over the top and you didn't get it? Well, that's what happened. I mean, after all, now the story of Jesus is at least somewhat familiar to many of us, maybe all of us. So we don't find it that incredulous that someone would die and be raised from the dead. But you have to remember, these guys never had that experience, and that wasn't common knowledge. No one had ever died and predicted their own resurrection. And in fact, when Jesus predicted his own resurrection, his enemies would scoff at him. What kind of lunatic are you? You're going to die, and you're going to, don't worry, I'm coming back. You wait, see, three days, count them off, three days, I'll be back. 
Jesus was living in the reality. It may be Friday, but what? Sunday's coming. Yeah, it's coming. Now, you see, the truth is this. Jesus predicted the darkness. And if we could just pause right here, I want us to understand that Jesus not only predicted the darkness in his own life, he predicted the darkness that you and I would face in ours. And so, if this morning you are in a dark place, this morning, if, if life seems overwhelming, if it could be anything, but if whatever you're facing seems too, too tall a mountain to climb, too big and deep a pit to somehow get yourself out of. If it's just dark. I think it's important for us to remember Jesus predicted the darkness in his own life. And if he is the sinless and perfect son of God, then who are we to think that somehow darkness won't come in our lives? Do we really think we're better than Jesus or deserve more? I don't think so. So let's not be completely set back and surprised when darkness comes into our lives. It's part of living in this broken world. It doesn't mean that our hearts don't break for each other when the darkness comes. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care and God doesn't sit in heaven and say, oh, well, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Don't worry doesn't mean that at all. As David the psalmist would say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's dark and that's deep, friends. David said, I will not fear evil because God is with me. The same God who's going to help me find light on Sunday is walking with me in the darkness on Friday. Jesus predicted the darkness, but he didn't stop there. He said, I will be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and they will crucify me. But Jesus also predicted that light would follow darkness. Listen, if you miss everything else I've said today, I want you to hear this. Jesus did not allow his own story to end in darkness. And he will not allow your story to end in darkness either. He predicted the darkness, but he also predicted the light. It's so important to understand. Now, Jesus spent a lot of time with a small group of guys that he called apostles and they wrote the majority of the latter portion of the Bible called the New Testament. And there's so much we can learn from them. And one of those guys was the Apostle Paul. And I want us to take a look at how Paul talked about this darkness and light thing. Take a look. I pray that your hearts will be, what are the next three words? Flooded with what? Light. Wow. And then he goes on to explain how it works so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called. 
His holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. And I'm not going to break all that out for us, but that's a pretty cool thing for you and I to consider that we are the inheritance that Jesus gives. You ever feel like he gets a bad deal from you? I feel that all the time. Yeah, he goes on to say, I pray also that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us. Wow, when our hearts are flooded with light, we will begin to understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in, at uh, the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. There's a mathematical formula in there that I want you to get. Okay? The power that raised Jesus from the dead equals the power that's at work in you and me. Is that incredible? That's kind of crazy. I mean, what kind of power did it take to take a man who had been brutally beaten and the fluids of his body drained out and hung up on a cross with his hands and his feet pierced until he could breathe no longer and take that broken, bruised, and bloody body and throw it in a grave and roll the stone across the entrance and, and go, well, I guess that's it. And then what kind of power would come back into that body and heal it completely and breathe the breath of life back into his lungs and he would stand up and push the stone aside and walk out and say, hello world. That's pretty amazing. I would say that's finding light after darkness, wouldn't you? Yeah, it may have been Friday, but Sunday was coming. So let's take a look at these three principles that we can learn from the resurrection of Jesus. And here's principle number one. The resurrection of Jesus teaches us that with God, there can always be light and life after death. Always. Not most of the time, not sometimes. With God, anything's possible. Remember that list of, but pastor, you don't know how bad I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what kind of addiction uh, binds me. You don't, you don't know the darkness in my life. You, 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 all that stuff. There's a story in the Bible for people just like you and me. When we get so down on ourselves that we think the world is cursed by us or that at a minimum we have been cursed in this world. On the day that Jesus was crucified, he wasn't the only one on top of that mountain. There were two other men who had also been sentenced to die because they had committed capital crimes. I mean, these are the big ones. The capital crimes are the handful of crimes for which you can actually be put to death. In one translation, they're called malefactors. I've never had a malefactor. I never ate one. But I'm pretty sure malefactor means bad dude. These are really bad people. 
And we pick up the story with Jesus and these two, these two criminals on their respective crosses. And as we read the story, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Hey, dude, aren't you the Messiah? Haven't you been telling us you're the Messiah? Fine Messiah you are. Save yourselves and us too if you really are. The other one rebuked him. He said, man, don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence, listen, we're punished justly and we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, I'm pretty sure he's done nothing wrong. And notice how he finishes what he says. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth today. You, my friend, will be with me in paradise. This man was hours from eternal darkness and separation from God. And in a moment, he went to hours of anticipation of being in the paradise of Jesus. How's that? for a dramatic shift in life. That's huge. The same Jesus who would look at that guy who had done horrible things, so horrible he deserved to be put to death. And Jesus said to him, there's no darkness so deep and so dark in your life that God cannot handle that instantaneously. The resurrection of Jesus teaches us that with God, there can always be light after darkness. That's important for us to know and to believe. The second principle is this. The resurrection of Jesus teaches us that the life God gives after death is always better than the one we had before. Now, by the way, all three of these get progressively more difficult to believe. Okay? So it's like climbing a ladder of challenge. It's one thing for me to believe that with God, there could always be light after darkness. But it's another thing for me to believe that the life that he promises me is better than the one that I'm building for myself. Yeah? I think it's hard for us to actually believe that the life God has for us is better than the life we've planned for ourselves. Take a look at this story. One day as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now what Jesus is actually saying is, hey, Peter and Andrew, you want to fish for fish? 
or you want to fish for people. Now, I'm quite sure they didn't understand what fishing for people was going to be like, what kind of a net you would use, what kind of a pole, what kind of a hook, all that kind of stuff. But here's the important thing. Jesus was saying to them, you can spend the rest of your life fishing for fish. That's the life you've chosen for yourself. That's your dream in this life. Or I have a life I can give you, and it's fishing for people. Now follow this with me. If Peter and Andrew had chosen to remain fishers of fish, nobody here would ever have heard of them. They would just be another couple of guys bobbing on the Sea of Galilee, thrilled about catching a big catch. But their lives in the end would have made no difference. But Jesus offered them a life that was different. There's a complication in this because on the surface, that seems easy, right? There's probably no one here who would dare to say, you know what? I think the life I've planned for myself is better than anything God could plan for me. If that's how you really feel, we need to have a talk about something else. Because most of us are not going to say that. But we have trouble believing, I mean really believing, that the life God has planned for me is better than anything I could build or plan for myself. And that's where we get to principle number three, which is even harder. And principle number three is this, the resurrection of Jesus teaches us that in order to get the new life God has for us, we have to be willing to let go of our present life. That's the hard part. You see, even if we're living in darkness, there's a certainty to the darkness where we are. And there's an uncertainty about the light that Jesus is calling us to. And sometimes we opt for the certainty of our darkness instead of the uncertainty that we see in his light. And so instead of letting go, we hang on. Let's see how Peter and Andrew did. The very next verse says this. They immediately left their nets and followed him. How'd they do in letting go? <laughs> see ya! Yeah. Now we see that in one sentence. I think that was a tough decision for them. That was a change of careers. Peter, we know, was married. Andrew might have been. We don't know. But we know Peter was married. So Peter went home to Mrs. Peter and said, I quit my job. Oh, yeah? Did you get another one? No. You know, you know that rabbi that's been living out, that homeless rabbi that wanders on the mountainsides and sleeps under trees? I've decided I'm going with him. So what kind of salary did you negotiate? Oh, he didn't give a salary. Peter, what are we going to eat? 
At least when you brought home fish, we had something to eat. <laughs> Jesus said, don't worry about that. He, he's got it covered. The dude who sleeps under trees is going to feed our family, right? How's that going to work? It was hard. It was hard for Peter and Andrew to let go. Because even though they may have cursed the darkness that was theirs, at least it was certain. There was uncertainty about that light. In order for us to wrap this up and help us apply it, there are three application questions that I don't want to rush through. So let's take a look at those. And the first one is this. What thing in my life do I need to just let die? Hmm. This is where a good friend of mine said, you know, pastor, you just quit preaching and you went to meddling. <laughs> yeah. So you came to church and the goal of Jesus is that you would leave in some measure a different and better person. And maybe the first step in that process is identifying something you need to just let go of. You actually need to let it die. It could be a hurt or a scar from your childhood. And there's a grudge you carry, and it's a raw and dark place in your heart, but you haven't let go of it yet. And somehow it gnaws away at your identity every day. Could be an addiction, a sin, that somehow has a grip on your life. And you've tried many times to break that addiction, but you've never been able to fully let it go. It could be a relationship that somehow has gone sour in your life. And you think about it regularly. And every time you think about it, you kind of clench your teeth. You know what I'm talking about? What is it? What thing in my life? It could be a dream that you've always had. And you hold it against God that you have prayed about that dream. But somehow he's never said yes to that dream. And you somehow are angry at God. Because there's this dream that you have for yourself that you are sure you can't be happy without and somehow you feel like God is standing between you and your dream. Maybe the greatest thing you could do this morning is identify what's that thing in my life that I actually need to let go of. Application question number two is built right on the back of that. 
What do I need to do in order for it to actually die in me? It's one thing to go, yeah, that's it. I know that needs to die. It's another thing to look at it and go, so what do I need to do? It's one thing for me to pray, God, would you put this to death in me? And it's another thing for me to, for God to say to me, hey, dude, I'll do my part, but you had a part in this too. What do I need to do? For Peter and for Andrew, their part was dropping the nets and following Jesus and until they were willing to let go of the nets and actually follow Jesus and to walk away from their boats. We know Peter had a boat because Jesus used it later in his ministry. So what do I need to do? And it's different for every person, so I can't stand up here and tell you what you need to do. But I do know this. If you pray about it, God will let you know what you need to do. I know that. He loves you. And he's not going to leave you in mystery. But here's the deal. Do not be surprised when you take this to prayer in God. You ever go to the doctor and the doctor pushes and goes, does that hurt? And you're like, oh, because the doctor knows exactly that's going to hurt. It's just confirming that's where you're injured, right? Do not be surprised if you go to God and say, God, what do I need to do for this to die in my life? And he goes, push. And you go, not that. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Because he loves you, he will go right to the heart of the problems and help you let go. But it doesn't mean it will be easy. And the third application question is this. What do I need to do in order to open myself to the new life God has for me? Because there are things for Peter and Andrew, it wasn't enough just to drop their nets. It says they dropped their nets and then what? They followed Jesus to open their lives to this light that Jesus had. As we close, I want to lead us in a prayer. And it's a postures prayer. So if you have something in your hand, I would invite you to take whatever's in your hand and set it down. Because there's this postures prayer that will really help us. See, we have a tendency to go through life hanging on to hanging on to things that, that we might not even like them, but they're part of us. They're part of our childhood. They're, they're part of how we look at life every day. It, it could be a dream we have and we think it's good. It could be a grudge we have that we're not willing to let go of. It could be a habit we have that we don't even like, but somehow we're not willing to let go of because we can't imagine ourselves without that habit, whatever it is. And we go through life with our hands clenched. Jesus invites us to take our clenched fists, and if you would be so kind as to put your hands in a clenched fist position, and Jesus says, would you just turn them over and open them up? And would you let whatever it is that you're hanging on to 
would you just let it go? And as we do that, he gives us another invitation. He said, would you take those palms that are now open, that are now unoccupied and not filled with the stuff we want, and would you turn them up, and would you prepare yourself to receive from me what I have for you? Jesus, that's our prayer. It's so easy for us to come with our hands clenched and hanging on to things, some of which we don't even like, but they seem that there's so much a part of us that we have a hard time letting go. And this morning you have taught us to open our hands and turn them down and let go of everything that would hold us and bind us and preoccupy us and limit us. And then you've invited us to turn our hands up and to receive from you the light that only you can give after darkness. It's in full faith in you that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move to a portion of our service that we call communion. And the shorter word in communion is commune, which means to actually be together and to talk and to visit and to have some sort of connection. And often we talk about a day. We talk about the day that Jesus was um, praying in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we talked a lot about that last week. And we talked about the day that Jesus was arrested. And, and then he was taken through these mock trials. And he was condemned to a capital death, to be put to death by the state. And he was tortured, terribly tortured and abused. And then having nails driven through his hands and feet and to be stretched out on a cross and to hang up there until he couldn't breathe anymore and die. It's one thing for us to talk about that here. I want to invite you this morning to use your imagination a little bit. In the words of an old African-American hymn, it asks this simple question. Were you there? When they crucified my Lord, have you ever taken yourself there in your imagination and sat at the foot of the cross and looked into the eyes of the one who was giving his life for you and you just sat there and took it in? Jesus said this, it's on the screen. When you do this, when you take communion, Remember me. Every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are telling others about the Lord's death 
until he comes. Near where you're sitting, you will find a communion kit. It could be in the back of the chair in front of you. It could be by one of the legs of the chair where you're sitting. Listen, at New Life, communion is optional. You don't have to take it. No one will judge you if you don't. We won't love you any less. We won't think any less of you. It's okay, okay? But at New Life, communion is also open, which means anyone who wants to remember Christ in the way that he invites us to, you are welcome to do that. And we would invite you to. The communion kit has, uh, depending upon which kind you have, there's a cellophane that covers some bread. Pull that cellophane wrapper back. And when you eat the bread, eat it remembering it represents the body of Jesus that was brutalized in his death for you. And then you can peel back the second layer and there's a cup of juice. And when you drink the juice, drink it remembering that the juice represents the blood of Jesus. His very life poured out at the foot of the cross so that you could find a light after darkness. Lord Jesus, we eat this bread, we drink this cup in your honor, and we are so grateful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.